Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes tech meister Marshall Brown, and by our artist of the show, actress, writer-improviser Edie Patterson. This episode also includes a salute to science fiction classic The Day the Earth Stood Still, and a look at Doug Nunn's Road to Publication. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hochsprung and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Dominique Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. The Road to Publication. Making Jolly Old Elf, The Art of Santa H. Claus, a Reality. I wonder, wonder who, who, who wrote the book of Tell me, tell me, tell me. I had been making my own Christmas cards for years. My style has been simple. I paste little heads of Santa, Frosty, Mrs. Claus, and Rudolph onto existing pictures, becoming a Christmas collagist. When I got Photoshop software back in 2000, after hearing about it for years from my artist friend Bob Kapitoff, I was off to a whole new level of copy and paste. I scanned the heads of Santa, Frosty, Mrs. Claus, and Rudolph into my computer, and the beginning of the Doug Nunn Christmas card style was launched. There were comic book Santas, football and baseball Santas, Santa in various political scenarios, Santa working to overcome climate change, and Santa, Mrs. C., Frosty and Rudolph in various famous paintings, from Michelangelo and Caravaggio to Edward Hopper and Thomas Hart Benton. By Christmas 2019, using these four little heads, I had pumped out over 170 cards in a variety of styles. Oh, wow. I thought about doing a show to give people a chance to see all these silly cards. Perhaps a weekend show at the Mendocino Arts Center. I imagined inviting people, serving Christmas cookies, and having a few laughs together looking at silly Christmas cards. Maybe I'd even do it as a slideshow, sort of a Christmas PowerPoint. In January of last year, I asked renowned local artist James Maxwell over for coffee to discuss the possibilities. Some years ago, I had taken a basic Photoshop class from Max, and he had been my mentor in art and Photoshop, even kindly designating me a collagist. Max knew the art scene, he knew art shows, and he told me doing a local show of my cards would probably be a waste of time. Just don't do it! As Max pointed out, there are so many ways to self-publish nowadays. He looked at the cards, listened to my ideas, and said, Why don't you just do an e-book, Doug? Over the next few months, Doug used his spare time to organize the Santa cards into folders. Art slash art history, climate slash environmental, family, i.e. the Santa family and friends, history, movies slash show business, music, politics, 
sci-fi slash superheroes, and sports such as baseball and football. A little from column A, a little from column B. Doug worked on making their formats uniform, i.e. 720 by 480 pixels in either a horizontal or vertical direction, and he made them all 72 dots per inch, figuring that way they would be ready to print. Mind you, Doug did all this without knowing if they should be 72 dots per inch. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. He just noticed that was a typical size for online photos. In other words, he blissfully just didn't really know what he was doing. For the next couple of months, I first brainstormed how to organize a book out of all these pictures. The main premise was that Santa H. Claus, I would never reveal what the H stood for, had been making art for years, redoing classic paintings, making his own movie posters, doing agitprop political posters, all while his wife, Mrs. C., and his good friends, Frosty and Rudolph, were trying to talk him into publishing his art. I decided I would like to have different main characters introduce sections of Santa's art collection. Frosty would narrate the intro. Mrs. C. would relate how they met and talk about their family life. And Rudolph would reveal Santa's connection to showbiz. That left a few other important sections that might need narrators. Doug had thought of other North Pole characters, some of which were prominent, so he decided to have these people narrate chapters as well. A few were characters he had developed in tandem with his old writing partner, Tracy Burns, when they wrote and produced a Christmas musical called Where's Santa? back in the early 1990s. There was Pixie McTavish, shop steward of the Elf Labor Federation, the union makes us strong. and a man Santa had played sports with. He became Santa's main narrator for the sports section of the book. There was Noel Epiphany, who had originally been an ace reporter for the polar media giant Snow NN. She became the environmental reporter. And Icy Ice, ostensibly Frosty's punkish son, who would narrate the music and sci-fi sections. I wrote and rewrote sections of the book, and by the beginning of September, I felt I had a workable draft, something I could send to Amazon's Kindle Direct Publishing and also to an independent publisher. I talked to our local bookstores, Christy Olson Day, who I worked with in Indivisible Mendocino, and she coached me on independent sites like Ingram Spark, a publishing house that welcomes self-publishers. Let the upload begin. Easier said than done. There were problems almost immediately. This was no ordinary book filled with text, but a publication that had over 150 color illustrations. I felt I was in over my head. Until I discovered links on the KDP page asking, Need help formatting? Yes, yes, I did. So I looked through various links and found one that seemed both competent and good-humored, which was key to me as my book project was so downright goofy. <laughs> I soon discovered the life-saving site 
booknook.biz and their boss, a remarkable woman named Hitch. The first thing booknook.biz asked for was a complete upload of Jolly Old Elf, The Art of Santa H. Claus. Suddenly, Doug had entered not a world of hurt, but a world of help. He got an email from Hitch notifying him that there might be some problems. I'm Hitch, and I'm the owner here at booknook.biz. When I pop open your file, I see 149 images. When I dive into a file like this, I extract the images in their original size, shape, and resolution. What I see here is a wide variety of dimensions, about half in TIFF format, half in PNG, which is unusual, and even more unusually, it almost looks as if they alternate PNG, TIFF, PNG, TIFF throughout. I won't kid you, it's not ideal. Houston, we have a problem. I liked Hitch's honesty and straightforward manner right away. She also gave me practical advice on converting my images from 72 DPI to 300 DPI. My recommendation would be, if there's an image you have that you like, you can also use something like ConvertTown, convert.town slash image dash DPI to increase resolution. Of all the tools out there, that little website seems to do the best job. Then she offered some very practical advice on the realities of copyright law. You do have a lot of materials that seem to come from other entities, people, publications, TV shows, and the like. I realize that you've been using these items as personal Christmas cards for some years now with your modifications, but there's a difference between creating something by mashing up content and appending a caption for personal use and then turning around and using it for commercial use. Hmm. Doug had been using other people's images, but he didn't even remember where he had found them. I don't know. That evening, they were babysitting their granddaughter, Little Bijou, and his wife, Christine, was going through some kids' books and discovered old Christmas books from Doug's childhood, including Santa's Little Toy Shop. What a jolly sound Santa's toy shop brings all the year around. Suddenly, as he looked through that book, he realized that that was where he had found and scanned those Christmas heads. That Santa's Little Toy Shop was a Disney book did not augur well for his hopes to make a book filled with those images. Thus began a night of worry and frustration. I rolled back and forth in bed as I thought, how can I ever make a book using these images, some of which came from this Disney book? Disney was known for suing anybody and everybody (coughs) for the slightest infraction. So what if I was a collagist? I didn't have a chance. Then came my aha moment. What about good old Daniel Stieglitz? Daniel Stieglitz is a German cartoonist caricaturist who Doug had met in 2009 when he was doing an improv coaching workshop in Kassel. That weekend, Daniel had done a fast and fabulous caricature of Doug, and they had stayed in touch over the years. Last year, Doug even interviewed Daniel about his art career for the Snap Sessions podcast. The very next morning, he wrote to Daniel asking if he might be able to help. He would have to draw three characters from scratch, Pixie McTavish, Noelle Epiphany, and Icy Ice, and he would have to take the original foreheads, which Doug had scanned from the Santa's Toy Shop book, and make something similar but different. The amazing Herr Stieglitz not only said, Ja, natürlich. 
he proceeded to create three brand new characters within a few days. And then he got me four brand new character heads a day or two later. His work was amazing and fast. I had all the heads and the new character drawings in color in just a few days. In mid-September began the busiest month of the bookmaking-slash-writing process, rebuilding every single picture with the new heads, making entirely new collages of each picture, and making sure they were all at 300 dpi. Thank God for Convert Town, and to Hitch for recommending it. I made new pictures for hours every day. I rewrote whole sections of the book, and then I recontacted booknook.biz. Now I had to prepare digital files for a paperback version and for an ebook version. Then, once I had uploaded them to booknook.biz, I had to wait for them to reformat properly. They worked hard, they met deadlines, but I couldn't help but be anxious. Jolly Old Elf, the art of Santa H. Claus, which Hitch insisted on calling Joe, was slowly cranking its way toward publication. Finally, in middle to late November, I was uploading the book to both Amazon KDP and Ingram Spark Independent Publishers as both a paperback and an ebook. There were still travails getting the cover for the paperback right. This actually took multiple uploads, even though my friend, professional graphic artist Mimi Ford, had helped me. Finally, it looked like the book was actually ready for release. I contacted Christy and Rob at Gallery Bookshop in Mendocino to host a book release party on Zoom due to the pandemic. I put together a keynote slideshow presentation for the event, making sure to talk about the origins of St. Nicholas and the development of Santa's fan fiction over time. From Twas the Night Before Christmas to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer to Frosty the Snowman. I showed text and pictures from the book, and Christy Robb and Gallery Bookshop managed to get copies of the book on hand for buyers to order through their website. Doug officially launched the book on December 6, but felt a bit like one of those generals who had taken the beach... But now what? He realized way too late that he had to do a better job publicizing the book. This wouldn't happen this year. He slowly came to the realization that this would be a two- or three-year project. Jolly Old Elf would be back, and hopefully with a better and bigger relaunch next year. This wasn't actually my first book. I had written a book on doing improv shows with teenagers back in 1999. But that was for a German publisher, and he did all the business work. What did I learn? With Jolly Old Elf, or Joe, as Hitch called it, I learned the whole process from conception to writing, rebuilding collages, getting pictures to the correct DPI, and dealing with copyright realities. I had stumbled my way along the road to self-publication. And I was reminded how much I love books. Reading them, of course, but writing them, too no matter how hard and challenging the process. Thank you, Santa H. Claus, for this lovely gift. I'll never forget the year I wrote a book. I'll never forget the day I read a book. It was contagious, 70 pages. There were pictures here and there, so it wasn't hard to bear. The day I read a book. It's a shame I don't recall the name of the book. It wasn't a history 
I know because it had no plot, it wasn't a mystery. Because nobody there got shot. One day I read a book, I can't remember when. But one of these days I'm gonna do it again, yes sir. One of these days I'm gonna do it again. Day the Earth Stood Still, How a Movie Changed My World. I first watched The Day the Earth Stood Still at the age of nine on NBC's Saturday Night at the Movies. It was a most powerful event in my young life, combining robots, aliens, and the scariness of nuclear power. This is the movie I have probably watched most in my life. More than Star Wars, Star Trek, or even It's a Wonderful Life. The first time I saw the movie, it scared the heck out of me. A big and mega powerful robot. An alien delivering an ultimatum on nuclear weapons. A world unable to unite in response. What could go wrong? The Day the Earth Stood Still is one of the most famous movies in the history of science fiction. It appeared in 1951 in the heart of the Cold War and the early days of the Atomic Age. It was one of the first great science fiction movies of the 1950s, an era filled with excellent sci-fi. Made in black and white, it was written by Edmund H. North, produced by Julian Blaustein, and directed by Robert Wise, who later went on to direct West Side Story, I feel pretty and witty and gay, and Star Trek, the motion picture. Science officer Spock, reporting as ordered, Captain. It stars Michael Rennie as the alien Klaatu, Patricia Neal as the single mom Helen Benson, Billy Gray of Father Knows Best fame as her son Bobby, Hugh Marlowe as her boyfriend, Sam Jaffe as the Einstein-like Professor Barnhard, and a giant Locke Martin as the robot Gort. A number of famous newscasters of the day, from Gabriel Heater to H.V. Kaltenborn to Drew Pearson, play themselves in the film, cataloging the rising tension. Let's start from the beginning of this wonderful little film. The credits open with spooky theremin music. As we view the solar system from the outside in, as some sort of alien craft is cruising toward Earth, this classic flying saucer orbits our planet and lands in Washington, D.C., right in the middle of a baseball field in a park. The ship, designed for travel outside the Earth's atmosphere, landed in Washington today at 3.47 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We still do not know where it came from. The ship is now resting exactly where it landed two hours ago, and so far there is no sign of life from inside it. Troops have been rushed across the Potomac River from Fort Myer and have thrown a cordon around the ship. They are supported by tanks, artillery, and machine guns. Behind the police lines, there's a huge crowd of curiosity seekers. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Every eye, every weapon is trained on the ship. It's been that way for two hours, and the tension is just beginning 
Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen. I think something is happening. So this flying saucer is landed in Washington, D.C. A humanoid emerges, and when he attempts to open a small device he is carrying, a nervous soldier shoots him. A giant robot named Gort comes out of the ship and disarms the surrounding army soldiers and tanks with various laser blasts until the injured alien orders the robot to stop. The alien, whose name is Klaatu, is taken to Walter Reed Army Hospital to have his wound treated and tells his handlers that the now shattered device would have allowed Earthlings to study life on other planets. He is visited by the President's secretary, a man named Mr. Harley. I want to meet with representatives from all the nations of the Earth. I'm afraid that would be a little awkward. It's completely without precedent. And there are practical considerations, the time involved, the, uh, the enormous distances. I travel 250 million miles. My mission here is not to solve your petty squabbles. It concerns the existence of every last creature on Earth. I don't want to resort to threats, Mr. Harley. I merely tell you that the future of your planet is at stake. I urge that you transmit that message to the nations of the Earth. I will make that recommendation to the President. But I must tell you in all honesty, I'm extremely dubious about the results. Apparently, I'm not as cynical about Earth's people as you are. I've been dealing in Earth's politics a good deal longer than you have. Good night, sir. So an alien comes from a distant planet to warn us about our future, and we shoot the poor guy. Klaatu wonders about these unreasoning suspicions and attitudes and is locked in his hospital room. The alien smiles sardonically as the scene ends, because no Earthman is going to keep Mr. Klaatu McClaatu face locked up for long. We next see Klaatu walking down the street in a sports coat that evening in Washington, D.C., where he finds a boarding house with a sign, Room for Rent. Apparently, Klaatu has become Mr. Carpenter, having taken the name from a suit he pilfered at the hospital. He procures a room and befriends the inhabitants, including a mom, Helen Benson, and her son, Bobby. In fact, he hits it off brilliantly with 10-year-old Bobby, a feat that absolutely delighted me as a kid. He helps Bobby with his math homework and even takes him to the movies. This alien gets along with kids. Bobby, I have an idea. Let's go and see Professor Barnhart and find out how he talks. You're kidding, aren't you? Wouldn't you like to meet him? Sure I would, but... Uh, I bet you'd be scared. Maybe we can scare him more than he can scare us. I like you, Mr. Carpenter. You're a real screwball. It turns out that Professor Barnhart is organizing an international space conference. Klaatu takes a chance and reveals his identity to the professor and figures out he must do something drastic to get these silly Earthlings' attention. I come to you as a last resort, and I confess my patience is wearing thin. Must I take drastic action in order to get a hearing? What what sort of action do you mean? Violent action, since that seems to be the only thing your people understand. Leveling New York City, perhaps? Or sinking the Rock of Gibraltar? Would you be willing to meet with the group of scientists I'm calling together? Perhaps you could explain your mission to them, and they, in turn, could present it to their various peoples. One thing, Mr. Klaatu. Suppose this group should reject your proposals. What is the alternative? I'm afraid there is no alternative. In such a case, the planet Earth would have to be eliminated. Such power exists? I assure you, such power exists. 
You mentioned a demonstration of force. Yes. Would such a demonstration be possible before the meeting? Yes, of course. Something that would dramatize for them and for their people the seriousness of the situation. Something that would affect the entire planet. That can easily be arranged. I wouldn't want you to harm anybody or destroy anything. Why don't you leave it to me? I'll think of something. Maybe a little demonstration. Something dramatic, but not destructive. That's quite an interesting problem. Would the day after tomorrow be all right? Say about noon. That day at exactly the same time around the world, all electrical power on Earth comes to a halt. The Earth stands still. Governments around the world realize that the escaped Klaatu is messing with them and put out all points bulletins and start manhunts in attempts to get the alien dead or alive. In the meantime, Klaatu has befriended Bobby's mom, Helen, who is trying to help him hide until the scientific conference. But the military finds and surrounds him, and Klaatu is finally gunned down on the streets of Washington, D.C., Just before he dies, he manages to divulge a key phrase to Helen, which will help disarm, yet mobilize Gort. Worried about Gort. I'm afraid of what he might do if anything should happen to me. Gort, but he's a robot. Without you, what could he do? There's no limit to what he could do. He could destroy the Earth. If anything should happen to me, you must go to Gort. You must say these words. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. Please repeat that. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. You must remember those words. Thank goodness Helen manages to get Gort. Gort rescues Klaatu, revives him in the flying saucer, and Klaatu is able to address the assembled scientist and deliver his warning message to Earth just before he takes off. What a comeback. And what an ominous ending. The Day the Earth Stood Still has proven to be one of the most influential science fiction movies of all time and was selected for preservation in the United States Library of Congress's National Film Registry. The film has been acknowledged as the fifth best film in the science fiction genre, with Klaatu recognized as one of the finest heroes in film history by the American Film Institute. In 2004, the film was selected by the New York Times as one of the best 1,000 movies ever made. And the famous line, Gort, Klaatu, Barada, Nikto, is recognized around the world in multiple languages. This film influenced filmmakers Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Imagine young Spielberg living with his mom, watching a single mom raising a kid, and an alien with a massive brain helping Bobby do his homework. A generation later, Spielberg was making Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. The music score was also epic. It was composed by Bernard Herrmann in August 1951. According to Wikipedia, Herrmann chose unusual instrumentation for the film. Violin, cello, and bass, all electric, two theremin electronic instruments, two Hammond organs, Fox Studios' Wurlitzer organ, three vibraphones, two glockenspiels, marimba, tam-tam, two bass drums, three sets of timpani, two pianos, celesta, two harps, one horn, three trumpets, three trombones, and four tubas. Herrmann's advances in film scoring included unison organs, tubas, piano, and bass drum, staggered tritone movement, 
and glissando in theremins, as well as exploitation of the dissonance between D and E flat and experimentation with unusual overdubbing and tape reversal techniques. In using the theremin, Herrmann made an early foray into electronic music. I might add, he also influenced the very idea of spooky and science fiction music generally. I have never since been able to hear the theremin again without thinking of this wonderful film. I have often thought of what might happen if Klaatu and Gort were to come back to check up on us. We have not dealt with either our propensity for violence or our nuclear weapons stockpiles. We are still capable of threatening any other civilizations, both on Earth and extraterrestrially. A couple years ago, I wrote a three-minute script called Return of the Day the Earth Stood Still, where Gord's flying saucer begins circling Earth once more. He looks through a scope and sees various scenes of violence and carnage below, ongoing wars, famines, and political idiots like George Bush and even worse, Donald Trump. We see Gort pull away from his scope, shake his head, and roll his eyes. Then his robotic hand slams down on a big red button. As the earth below shatters into millions of pieces. For years I used this film for an environmental science class I taught. I would show them the movie and then ask them to respond to Klaatu's final speech to the assembled scientist at the end where he offers Earth a robotic police force of gorts to control violence. It comes in the form of an ultimatum and the students had to respond with a letter to save our planet from destruction. Let's finish with Klaatu's parting speech as we wonder how we would respond today. I am leaving soon. And you will forgive me if I speak bluntly. The universe grows smaller every day. And the threat of aggression by any group, anywhere, can no longer be tolerated. There must be security for all, or no one is secure. Now, this does not mean giving up any freedom, except the freedom to act irresponsibly. Your ancestors knew this when they made laws to govern themselves and hired policemen to enforce them. We of the other planets have long accepted this principle. We have an organization for the mutual protection of all planets and for the complete elimination of aggression. The test of any such higher authority is, of course, the police force that supports it. For our policemen, we created a race of robots Their function is to patrol the planets in spaceships like this one and preserve the peace. In matters of aggression, we have given them absolute power over us. This power cannot be revoked. At the first sign of violence, they act automatically against the aggressor. The penalty for provoking their action is too terrible to risk. The result is we live in peace without arms or armies, secure in the knowledge that we are free from aggression and war, free to pursue more profitable enterprises. We do not pretend to have achieved perfection, but we do have a system, and it works. I came here to give you these facts. It is no concern of ours how you run your own planet, but if you threaten to extend your violence this earth of yours will be reduced to a burned-out cinder. 
Your choice is simple. Join us and live in peace or pursue your present course and face obliteration. We shall be waiting for your answer. The decision rests with you. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. I'm here with Edie Patterson. Edie is a longtime improviser, actor, and a goofball, I would say. A wonderful nut. She's also a writer. She's done a lot of sketch writing, also television writing. I've known Edie since probably the late 90s. I think I met you for the first time in Los Angeles. Probably 2000 or 2001. Yeah, right around there. I recall you coming to uh, L.A. when you first moved there. And I had just come back from, I think, Germany. And I, I had been in a maestro. And I had was the last man standing. And the very next week, I was in a maestro with you. And I was the next to the last man standing because you were the last man standing. <laughs> it's great to have you here, Edie. I'm so, glad to be here, Doug. And I know you're from Texas City, Texas. And I think that's, that's, down, right. that's down by Houston. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, about 40 minutes from Houston and probably like 15 minutes from Galveston. Oh, down toward Galveston. Yeah, so you, it's on the water. So did you ever get any, um, you know, you must have had hurricanes and stuff then. Oh, yeah. it's. I've definitely lived in a hurricane place, mm-hmm. um, and it's still a thing every year that is, you know, a big deal, and we look out for every every year, and my mom will tell me what, what storms are coming, and but we, we had some gnarly ones growing up, and they the worst one was not that long ago. Was that two years ago? The one that sort of decimated Houston. That was, uh, I think, 2017 or something like that, Hurricane Harvey. Yeah. That was the meanest one. That was something like five feet of water in Houston, something like that. Yeah. I do these environmental talks, so I had heard about that. That's one of the ones people like, no, Hurricane Harvey. So Yeah, that one was brutal. I think partly because you would know better than me, Doug, exactly what it's called, but it's it was partly because so much of Houston is concrete and they've built over so much of the green. That is part of the problem. You grew up in Texas City and your mom was a teacher and your dad was a plumber, right? You were an athletic kid. You were like a sporty kid when you were a kid. Tell us about growing up in Texas City. Yeah, I was a runner. I ran track from really early on. And um, we would do summer track before we could do track at school. I've probably never told you this. I went through a phase where I 
legitimately looked like a boy because my hair was so short <laughs> and I, I can remember seeing someone on TV, you know, some grown woman and thinking like, Ooh, I'll look great with short hair. And it was not the case because I was a <laughs> child, but it was to the point that like we would go to restaurants and um, waiters or waitresses would say like, and what will you have, sir? No. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I was really fast not until later did I go like, oh, I was weirdly passing. I just thought, oh, because I'm so fast, the coach puts me on the boys' relay team. Now I've realized, oh, probably because he knew he could pass me off as a boy. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a sprinter? No, I, I was more distance, but, you know, that at that age, I did, you know, the re- 400 relay and the other oh, yeah. relays and stuff. And then later I ran the mile all the way through junior high and And then all through high school, I still ran track and did cross country. But the second I got into high school and started doing plays, I didn't care about winning races anymore. I just wanted to win (laughs) a different kind of way. I wanted to, I wanted my focus to be on doing plays and being good in them. And so I kept doing track and cross country because I liked it. And I liked sort of staying in shape that way all year, but I didn't care about winning. I was so obsessed with winning sort of like up to eighth grade that I, Oh God, it's really bad. I don't know what this speaks to. I need to figure this out in some therapy, but I would decide the week before that if I didn't win, I would die on the track. Like I was, I was going to do everything I could to win. And so all week I would be sick leading up to the race, just worried, sick, full of dread every week for all week. And then, um, and then I would win but the victory was not so sweet because then I'd immediately start worrying about like that I had to win the next time. Oh, classic. Now, you were also presumably a drama nerd early on. You yeah. said you, you made the transition to high school. Did you do straight plays right away? Did you always want to be in comedies? Tell us a little bit about the origins of Edie being a drama nerd person. You know, initially I just did whatever was was happening, whether it was a musical, I can sing. So I do whatever musical or whatever very serious play, Our Country's Good. Do you know that play where the they ship all the Australians off to prison? I don't know that one. Yeah. Tell me. You know, it's just very dramatic, but it, you know, I got to do a dramatic monologue in that. Yeah. I didn't really care if it was comedy or drama, but I knew in my real life, I gravitated toward comedy definitely my thing at home or with my family or my friends was trying to make them laugh. And so later, I don't think until later did I realize I didn't have an outlet to do improv until kind of spottily in college. That's when I kind of started realizing like, oh yeah, that's, that's my thing. Like I, I still like doing drama. I, I think if you're really good comedically, you're a really you're also a really good dramatic actor, and I don't think it necessarily goes the other way. I was just thinking when I was a kid, Jackie Gleason was a very mm-hmm. funny man, but he also was good in serious roles like The Hustler or something like that. And yeah. people would always act like, "Oh, Jackie Gleason can do serious parts." I agree. It seemed like it worked better that way than it, it went the other way. It's all just, it's all, you know, you probably thought Jackie Gleason was funny because he was real. I think it's all just meaning what you say. And if you're, if you, if there's that weird authenticity to what you're saying, then I think it's either funny or lands in a real way. So when you went off to, you went to Southwest Texas and you were a drama major, right? Yeah. Texas State is what it's called now. And I, yeah, they called it a, uh, 
yeah, theater major and, and I did a BFA in acting. You right away knew you wanted to major in that. That's the, you, when you headed down there. I thought I was going to double major in uh, theater and art, like drawing. and. But then I went to a couple of classes and realized, I forget even what it was called, like the studio portion of the art class. Like you'd go to the art class and then there was like another portion of it that you had to be in class for like four more hours. And I was like, I, I got to be at rehearsal. <laughs> so I, I quickly was in one major. It was crazy to think I was going to double major in art. Yeah. yeah. The hours would have been insane. <laughs> Were you in musicals too? Because I know you can sing. I've been in shows with you where you're you're singing and, and lots of improvised stuff. What were your, some of your favorite roles when you were a university student, when you were a college mm, student? I think my favorite when I was there was a dramatic play called When You Coming Back, Red Rider. Have you ever heard of that? Mm. It's a, you know, some psycho uh, comes into a restaurant. It's in this, it's a period piece in the 60s and um, holds everyone hostage in this restaurant. And I was a, a violin player who he was holding hostage in the restaurant. <laughs> yeah. I would, we did uh, West Side Story. That was cool. I, you know what? I feel like I had one. I mean, this is a terrible, probably kind of shitty thing to say, but I feel like I had one really good teacher at college. I don't know that I feel like the rest were awesome or saw me and many other people for what they were capable of. There were a couple that did. And it, the the best teacher there, in my opinion, was a dude named Larry Hovis, who has since passed away. But he was uh, he played Carter on a show I don't super know, but a um, a show called Hogan's Heroes. You know? Oh yeah, one? sure. Oh, I know Carter. I know yeah. Larry Hovis. Yes. Yeah. Okay. He was the TV film teacher at my school. Luckily, while I was there, he was great because he was all about meaning what you say and taught us that thing of like, if you, if you mean it, it's just going to show up on your face and you don't have to show us what you mean, you know, like, and I'm not saying the other teachers there were bullshit, but they were more, they were coming from a more academic place that didn't super resonate with me. There was a fair amount of like lecturing and you're, you know, hardcore taking notes and and you're going like, what is this for? Just to regurgitate it on the test? Mind you, we did have a fair amount of like, now you do your monologue and we, it was full on acting major, but um, he was the best not to say everyone else was not good, but mm -hmm. they weren't the best at noticing people's differences. And I say this just based on other friends I had there too, where I go like, how did you not see what she was up to? How'd you, uh -huh. wait, how'd you not see the weirdness of that guy? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's great. I always liked Hogan's heroes and I liked Sergeant Carter and I remember him. He, uh, he's kind of a relaxed guy. So were you doing improv then, or uh, from what I uh, from what I remember, you went to Austin, which is you know one of the mm -hmm. cool cities of Texas, and uh, you got involved in theater sports Austin. And I think mm -hmm. there was a guy named Sean Hill who was running it. Yeah. Dan and I were in workshops in I think the summer of '97 with Bats, and that's where I met Sean, oh, wow. and Dan did too. Sean asked Dan to come back to Austin to coach some workshops, and I think uh -huh. you guys met there. I, I already knew I was moving to LA um, from Austin. I hadn't been out of school too long, but yeah, I started legitimately improvising in Austin. That's where I, the first time I would do like shows where audiences paid. And I had done a couple of things in college where we would like <laughs> enter whatever sort of weird giant talent show was happening and like <laughs> play some improv games. <laughs> um, but yeah, in Austin, that theater sports was the first shows with real audiences and stuff. I knew I was moving to LA and 
Dan and Brian Loman had come to teach our group because like you said, Sean was friends with Dan and we made friends and I was like, oh, cool. I made a couple of friends that I will know when I go to LA. Yeah. Dan and I didn't occur to each other in that moment as like, Ooh, I think I'm going to marry that one. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think he thought I was like 16 or 17 years old. I wasn't a ton older than that, but he, uh, he had a girlfriend. And so it just sort of occurred to both of us as like, Oh yeah, what a cool friend. I will say though, I had a weird, weird thing where the whole weekend I was taking his class and I kept thinking, I know that guy. What do I know him from? I know him. So yeah, maybe that was my, maybe that was the only rumbling of like, yeah, I've, I've already married him in some timeline. (laughs) (laughs) Soon thereafter you moved to LA, right? Mm -hmm. And you came out. So this was like the end of the nineties, something like Uh, that. I moved to LA. I feel like I got here in, in 2000. Very, very, very end of the nineties or beginning of the. The new millennium would come. I remember meeting you in workshop, theater sports workshops there. LA theater sports. So you were, you wanted to go out and try the acting thing out. Was your first contact with other improvisers with LA theater sports, or did you have other people you wanted to meet and stuff when you moved out there? Well, I had known from probably just online or hearing about them or whatever. I knew I wanted to go see the groundlings. And so that was, I did that very early on when I got here and went and saw a main show and thought, Oh boy. That, you know, that kind of ice water in your veins feeling of like, oh my God, they do what I like to do. They're doing characters. Oh my God, I have to be in this. And then at the same time I was doing LA theater sports, I started classes at the Groundlings. And so the the whole time I was sort of doing classes simultaneously. And when I'd be waiting for a class at the Groundlings, I'd still be doing class and improvising with theater sports. The Groundlings, for those who are unfamiliar... They're like the mega group in Los Angeles, the big improv group, like Second City is in Chicago, or maybe the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York. The Groundlings are, they've produced Will Ferrell, Kristen Wiig, Pee Wee Herman, Lisa Kudrow, Melissa McCarthy. You came to LA and you knew you wanted to be involved. They have rather a complicated uh, workshop process. Tell us about that. It's interesting because... The Growlings is definitely has improv in the mix, but ultimately the thing that happens at the Growlings is written sketch. So you're kind of working toward that constantly. And the, at the point when I took the classes, it probably took me, there's a sort of a final level of the school called the Sunday company where you are writing and performing a new show every week, hmm. almost like an SNL model where you're just constantly churning new material you do that ideally for a year and a half and then you get voted on as to whether or not you're a groundling. So I would say with the Sunday company, the whole deal took me five years or maybe a little longer to go through. Cause you have to start at the very beginning, which is called basic. But yeah, it's, it takes, it takes a while and there's t- periods of time where there's these giant weights and then there's periods of time where there's just more classes happening and there's not the giant weights. I hope it's not giant weights right now because it's when I did it, there would be times you'd have to wait almost a year between your classes. I recall visiting you and Dan in L.A. and you were writing skits. You were working with various people. You sometimes then might group with a couple of friends that you're like, hey, I really like to work with this guy or this 
this woman, and then you start to write together and stuff. Most of that, you guys are writing every week for the Groundling Sunday Sunday show. Yeah, when you're in Sunday Company, you're writing every single week. And I would say the majority of your time is spent meeting up with people and writing because everything in the show is written by the people in the show. If you want to do a character or you want to do something that's your voice, you have to write it. You'll be cast in other people's things, but you'll be cast as things to support them for their idea. So yeah, you're constantly just going through the list of everyone in your group going like, okay, we're meeting today. We're meeting today. I mean, sometimes I would have three writing meetings in a day and then you're just dead at the end of it. Because each one takes a couple hours at least, oftentimes three. And then you've got those friends who you have, you just have such a good time with that you end up sitting for five or six hours laughing the whole time and going, guess next time we'll get a sketch out of it. (laughs) Are you getting paid for that or is that all unpaid? All unpaid. And the groundlings don't get paid either. Uh, In the main company, we don't get paid either. But it sort of ends up helping you in in every way. The stuff I've learned from it is has helped me to get jobs where I get paid. But yeah, it's an interesting model in that it's it's a legit nonprofit. No one gets paid for doing the shows. You donate a lot of time just for the creative joy of it. And also you get seen, you get seen by some people who are maybe in the biz who want to have you in various shows over time. And then meanwhile, you're also doing shows with other ensembles like LA Theater Sports, which then eventually leads you toward um, Impro Theater in the future. You've also done a lot of that kind of work too, where I know you're a a regular member of the ensemble with, with Impro Theater. I know you like doing that a lot too, because I talked to Dan in his interview. Impro Theater does a lot of wonderful genre narrative where they do Jane Austen unscripted, Chekhov unscripted, Shakespeare unscripted, etc. Twilight Zone unscripted. Uh, the Portal, I guess it's called. Yeah, when when we filmed it for uh, or the Twitch channel, it's called The Portal. But when we do it on stage, a lot of times it's just called Twilight Zone unscripted. Is that one of your favorite things to do as a, as a performer, improviser? Is that kind of stuff you like? Or do you like sketch stuff or which do you like more? Improv is a different thing for me in that I would have to say improv because improv to me is, uh, can get transcendent in a way that sketch can, if I allow some improv to come into it. But if I had to pick one, I'd say improv. Because I I wanted I want to improvise all the time. Here's a side note. Dan and I started watching this um, foosball documentary the other night. I forced him. I was like, this looks great. And it wasn't <laughs> as great as that. Because um, you sort of start to realize really quickly, like, oh, I'm not that interested in foosball. But the <laughs> there was this one guy who was saying he wants to do it all the time. And as he was saying it, I was like, golly, that sounds like homework. Like, oh, you're working on your wrist thing and how boring and like, oh, go down and play foosball, blah. And then I was like, oh, you know what though? That's his thing where improv is my thing. I don't, I don't even think about it like a separate thing from me. I just think like, oh, if I'm not doing live shows, which none of us are right now, I'll get in whatever online. Or if I'm not doing that, that day I'll force Dan to do scenes with me. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) And it's without even thinking. So yeah, I would I would have to say improv just because it's I feel like it's part of my soul. One of the things I I can't help but ask this question. This is sort of a, an aside too. Mm-hmm. You're a Texan. You grew up in Texas. 
yet you don't have a, a Texas accent. Did you purposefully, like when you went to drama school, go like, of course I can do a Texas accent. I'll shelve it for now and I do my regular generic American accent. I weirdly never thought about it. Went mm-hmm. to college in Texas, as you know. But I can remember coming home from college one weekend and my Uncle Kenny going, um, why are you talking like that? And I was like, like what? And he meant with no accent. And I didn't even know it was not a conscious thing. It's clearly like very easy for me to go back into. But yeah, I never did that thing where I thought, oh, let me... Let me become standard American. <laughs> because it is one of those things, when I've seen you on stage or been on stage with you and you quickly snip back into uh, Texas City, it's real obvious. <laughs> it's easy easy money for you. So, But it's just, a, it's one of those things. I have friends, you know, different improviser friends who are from the South and, you know, they, they hide it, boop, just sort of shelve it quickly. So, Well, my, uh, on my show, I have a, a Southern accent, but it's not exactly Texas. I find it 0% hard to slip into. I just feel like it's part of me. Well, that's when I just, I had just one of my asides I had to ask. So let's talk a little bit about your TV work, which led you towards your HBO shows. You've done all kinds of parts, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Weeds, Californication. Tell us about, you know, auditioning and, and becoming an, uh, an actor who's trying to get herself out there. What are some of the fun roles you've played be- leading up to some of the more uh, HBO stuff you've done recently? Let's see. I really liked that experience of being on Curb because I loved the show so much. And it was just interesting to be there and even see how it was different. That audition was fun in that, you know, they just give you a little bit of a sentence and you just go in and improvise, which clearly I like. Larry David kept cracking up because I was being a little bit, a little bit mean to him and a little bit nasty. (laughs) And he kept laughing during it, which made it really fun. But that, that's one thing I've discovered about auditioning is that if there's room at all, if they say anything even resembling like, you know, feel free to play with it or make it your own a little bit, or that's like the golden ticket to me. Because then I know without a doubt, I can uh, just totally do what I'm going to do with it. And then I can leave there going, well, that's what I do with it. And you can take that or leave it, but that's what I do. And sometimes if you if you don't have just a tiny bit of um, freedom in it, you can leave going like, I don't know if I, I don't know if I totally showed myself, you know, Mm -hmm. but for me, that was a huge, huge key in learning. Just do what you're going to do with it. There's no deciding what they want. There's no thing of like, I think they want this, or I think they want this type of girl, or I think they want this to feel like this as much as I can make my brain not go to that. Uh, and get more more lifted than that and more fun. I don't, I don't know if you have cursing on this. No, no, we do. It's that I, when you've okay. said what you've said is totally, you can be whatever. Okay. Say whatever, yeah. Um, but for me, it's a, fu- it's a fuck it mindset. If I, I have to get my head to almost to the place that I have to get it to before I improvise of, I don't know, let's see. Let's see how this is. Fuck it. I'm going to have fun in there. And I think it takes a little bit to get to that. I think it takes doing a fair amount of auditions and then you go, oh, right. All I've got, the only superpower I've got is that I'm me. So let me go do exactly what I'm going to do with this. But I would say that was a huge thing I learned through improvising and through auditioning 
And then kind of suddenly they both kind of merge and you go, oh, right. It's the same mindset <laughs> when I'm lucky. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think that's probably what's given you the, the leg up in your career is that you've been able to be yourself and people have appreciated you for that. Because when I see you in a show or, you know, when I've seen you on stage and I see you being yourself, you're having fun and you're kicking ass. You're the 16-year-old girl who's running with her short hair and, you know, you're <laughs> running oh, that, as fast as she can. Was, that yeah. girl was about mm, nine. Okay, so fair. Really looked like a boy. Oh, but when I was 16, no, I looked like a full girl. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Well, anyway, I, but I mean, you know, this business about being yourself and stuff, and and it yeah. strikes me that that's given you a chance to have a big career. You know, you've you've gotten places because of that, which is great. It's great, and it also probably got you uh, somewhere in terms of the HBO stuff. I think a lot of actors would, comedy actors especially, would die to have some of the roles you've had. You scored on Vice Principals, one of the two series, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about the Gemstones too. You got a, a part with there as Miss Abbott, who has a big mm -hmm. crush on uh, Danny McBride's character, Neil yeah, Gamby. Gamby. Tell us about, you know, getting the role and, you know, how you guys hit it off. And seems to be that part took off for you. That, uh, I just auditioned for that. I didn't know that uh, Danny and Jody, who's one of our directors, I didn't know they were going to be at the audition. So I got there and improvised a little bit in it because I could, could tell from something either Sherry Thomas said or from that they said of like, feel free to play with it a little. Yeah, we just had a really, really good time. And then it took a long time to hear whether or not I got that. And then I did. And I think it was in, initially set up for four episodes in the first season or five episodes or something like that. And that morphed the the second season changed and there was a point when Danny called me between the first and second season and said like, Oh, we're thinking about kind of doing this um, kind of, I think he said fatal attraction type vibe with Miss Fat Miss Abbott. Would you be into that? And I was like, yeah, I think I'd be into it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Let me call you back. Yeah. I, I <laughs> jumped, jumped at the chance, but yeah, we just had a really fun time together and it was all really well written, but there was a point early on, maybe in the first day I shot with Danny, where we had done a scene a few times where we were like getting on a bus for a field trip. And I, I just asked him like, do you ever want us to throw anything different at you when you come up? And he said something like, yeah, say whatever you want. Cause we had already gotten it as written a few times. And so then I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, we just had a really, really good time together. And then, uh, ended up writing a movie after, and then I knew that he was putting gemstones together and knew he wanted me to be Judy. And then he asked me to come write for gemstones. And so I'm a writer on that show as well. Yeah. It was getting to work with those guys and then it going so well has been like the joy of my creative life. Like it's the greatest. The gemstones has kind of taken off and I, are you guys like on hiatus now uh, with the COVID stuff or are you, have you been working? Have you been able to work together? Well, we uh, we were on hiatus from shooting. Last March, we shot for two days and then everything shut down. Mm. And I had been there last year from September till March because we write there as well when it's not COVID. 
So we shot for two days, got shut down. And then I guess since sort of late August or something, we've been rewriting the second season just because more time has passed than we initially thought would have passed. And yeah, we just wanted to do a bunch of stuff. So we, yeah, we have just sort of um, rounded the corner on finishing rewriting the second season. And hopefully we'll go back in March and film it all. It's, it's a it's a great show. For those of our Snap Sessions listeners that don't know, it's a show about kind of a revivalist, fundamentalist family, upper echelon, yeah, who have tele- a lot of money. Televangelists. Televangelists, thank yeah. you. John Goodman plays the family patriarch, who's uh, Dr. Eli Gemstone. <laughs> Danny McBride is one of the sons, right? And then you're the daughter, Judy. And mm-hmm. Judy sort of pretends to be one thing, but actually lives a life. She's kind of a floozy of sorts uh, in <laughs> real life. <laughs> Doug, how dare you? <laughs> but it's a it's a great show. The televangelist thing, you know, that's the, that's what the facade is. And then we get to find out about these people's private lives, what goes on. Uh, you get to write a part of that show as well. What's a typical like couple of weeks that goes on and shooting an episode or a month or whatever? Well, so we all live in Charleston when we're filming. Yeah, it just depends on what episode we're on. You know, there's a lot of us in the show. So sometimes, you know, you may have two days where you're just off in Charleston, but then you may come upon a week and a half where it's all night shoots and you're waking up at, 1 p.m. to go shoot all night or mostly it's just really 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 fun because of the people on it yeah and just even you mentioning john like still we all pinch ourselves you know there's times when uh danny and adam and i will be like john goodman's our dad on this (laughs) it's just crazy because you know that's a dude who's from inside all of our kid brains as i'm like Oh my God, Raising Arizona. Oh my God, the big Lebowski. You're like, I get to do something with this guy? (laughs) To me, he's got one of the coolest, one of the coolest careers of all time as an actor. Like absolutely something to aspire to. I mean, he does it all. Can you think of anything he doesn't do well? (laughs) He's a great actor and he also seems like a good guy. And he's been in so many big hits. I mean, you know, Roseanne, the, the sitcom, but you know, he's been in all these great movies. You mentioned Lebowski. It must be fun. Has he done much improv in his career? No. Out, at, out to dinner one night, I asked him, and uh, he said, zero. There, there's there's none in, like, all the Coen Brothers movies he's done, which was shocking to me. I figured there'd be, you know, peppered in a little bit. And no, it's it's all it's all new to him to sort of play around in that way. And not that we always do it on our show. It's just sometimes it comes up but he's great at it. <laughs> you will yeah. get to return with the gemstones. You will get to come after, hopefully we've all gotten vaccinated and stuff. You will get to be back. Yeah, we're slated to go film in March. I look forward yeah. to that and I'm glad that's happening. So you'll be heading back to Charleston and be working down there for a while. Yeah, knock wood. Yeah. Knock wood. I'm knocking wood for you too, because that's it, mm-hmm. great. And then so uh, apropos of career breaks, a great movie that came out toward the end of 2019 that you had a really good part in was Knives Out, which yeah. had a stellar ensemble, uh, including Daniel Craig, Anna de Armas, Jamie Lee Curtis, Don Johnson, Tony Collette. It's a great comedy murder mystery. I don't want to give anything away here, but <laughs> this the wonderful Edie uh, plays a housekeeper. Fran, something happens to Fran, so I can't give that away. <laughs> Fran plays a key part. 
It was so interesting because when I first went to the movie, I didn't know you were in it. I oh, went out really? the, the first week I think it came out, it was at the movies here in Fort Bragg. I'm watching that there's a cocktail scene early on where you guys were all drinking to a kind of a party or something. And I said, hey, that's Edie drinking a cocktail. Then I followed the movie. And of course, then I read about it afterwards and all. That must have been a kick to be involved with that. And you have a key part. Yeah, I have a cool part. <clears throat> it was a kick. It was in Boston. So it was and I had never really been there. So it was um freezing cold. And we uh, would shoot out at this giant house in Wellesley. So much of the shooting happens in that house that you see. A couple of the rooms were built separately, but mostly we are in that real house. There was a sort of a green room made in the basement of the house. The trailers and stuff were were just far enough away and just enough of a cold van ride away that mostly people would just come down and be in that green room in between their things. And so that green room was crazy because you're like, you're sitting there and you're like, whoa. Yeah, sitting there making friends with Jamie Lee Curtis as Don Johnson tells some story and asking Tony Collette questions. And um, it was really very, very cool. My question then becomes, is this leading to more movie parts for you, hopefully? I mean, hopefully, yeah. It seems like I, um, I definitely hear about more things and I'm in more conversations, you know, uh, I went and did a little part in this cool movie during all this, but not not many movies are happening right. <laughs> during all this, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I did go do a cool one in Syracuse um, for a couple of days. But yeah, I would say it's kind of opening it all up. I, re- I really, really, really like doing the gemstones. I think it's really awesome. It's a great show. It, presumably, hopefully, that'll lead to some other things for you, too. It's an interesting thing now with this COVID thing. Um, it's It seems like the brakes are on, the emergency brakes on, and then you'll get to jump. I'm hoping for you that, you know, we get to see you. I don't want to see you murdered in any other movies, but, you know. <laughs> Spoiler. But I also know that, you know, the wisecracking um, Edie Patterson that I've known for some years now will be back, and, and she'll get to be in some good parts coming up, which will be way cool. I just want to ask, too, about, you know, in terms of balancing a career, you're involved involved in um you're involved in the groundlings you mm-hmm. still do that right or when you when this ends you'll be able to come back to that you're involved in impro theater you're going to be mm-hmm. doing the gemstones and then movie parts come up balancing all that is that kind of hard for an actor actress uh, improviser i actually welcome all of it it's yeah i'll t- i'll take every bit of it the you know stuff like being in the main company in the groundlings by all rights, I should become an alumni soon because I am out of town so much working on my show and other things that you need to sort of like stay in good standing. And I just have remained a groundling partly because of COVID because why kick me out? Yeah. <laughs> but And I do, you know, I do uh, once a week an improv show online with the groundlings right now just because we wanted to see what it was like and every theater needs to make money to survive right now. But that's been fun. But yeah, it's, I think more, it's just sort of when you're out of town working, the live theater companies you're with either have to be okay with that you're gone for a while. And both of them have been. Yeah. I think it's people understanding, like if I'm in town, you better believe I'm going to do any impro theater show I can. 
And you do. And when you, you know, yeah, I think you bring big game, you know, you bring game whenever you show up. Yeah. I was telling Dan when I talked to him that it was my hope I could do the summer school week. I would also, I was all signed up for it to Uh come in June. So with a little luck, I'll be able to come up sometime this next year when um, cool. we're able to do it and hang out for a week and you know Great. see all you guys and do, do do the courses and everything. I'll, I'll have fun doing that. So before we come to an end here, you and Dan have been together, what, close to 20 years now, something like that? Yeah, married something like 16 or 17. That's nuts. And it's a, it's an accomplishment combining showbiz careers. That's one of those things, you know, Paul Newman and now I forget her name. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Mrs. Oh. Newman. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there there are people who are able to combine it. It is tough to, you know, combine showbiz careers and everything. But you guys get along well. I mean, it's one of those kind of classic things. So any tips for people on combining showbiz careers? My only tip is if, you, if you're married to someone who uh, wants you to do dumb things all the time, like skits and or watch this, just do it. I like that, Edie. I, I'm, I'm that person in the relationship where I'm like, yeah, but just do this or watch me do this or here, let's play like we're this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My advice is if you're the other person, just do it. I love that, Edie. And on yeah. that note, we will say goodbye to a woman I call Edie Bobidi. Edie right. Patterson, who is one of the fun people around in the world. Uh, we've really enjoyed talking with you, Edie. And thanks for being on Snap Sessions. Thanks for having me, Doug. I love you. I love you too. Thank you, Edie. See you later. See ya. Thanks to our artist of the show, actress, writer, improviser, Edie Patterson. Our production team includes techmeister Marshall Brown, jack-of-all-trades Ken Krause, writer-interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. We depend on the support of listeners like you to cover our monthly podcast and transcription service costs. Please join us as a Snap Session supporter. We have support levels from Little Snapper to Snappus Maximus. Thanks to all of our generous supporters.